0: Hi guys, and welcome back to the killer crime podcast. My name is Georgia and I'm Martha and I'm so excited because I finally bought a new microphone. So hopefully I'll be providing you guys with the same quality audio that you've been getting from all of Martha's podcast episodes. Uh, We even have matching mics now because that's the type of cool cousins that we are. (laughs) You know, we're moving up in the charts, So I thought it was about time for a little investment. Speaking of which, if you're listening to us right now and enjoying the episodes we're putting out, we would absolutely love it if you were able to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to support us. So, today I have a case for you guys that is equally bizarre as it is tragic. It's a solved case, but with so much loss and so many twists and turns, I guarantee you won't want to pause this episode for even a second. And when you think it's over, it's really just beginning. Okay, let's set the scene. It's 1985 at a house in rural Essex called White House Farm. For our listeners outside of the UK, Essex is a county which is just to the right of London and actually only about an hour away from where I live. So this house is a big old farmhouse owned by the Bamber family. In this family is Neville and June who are married and in their 60s, their daughter Sheila Caffell who is 28 and her twin boys, Nicholas and Daniel who are aged just six. Neville and June also have a son, Jeremy, who's 24 and works at his parents' farm, but lives about three miles away in Goldhanger. June and Neville had adopted both children as very young babies, so they all grew up together as quite a secure family unit. They're quite a well-off family and are just living this idyllic life in the English countryside. The area has really low crime rates and it's just one of those places where nothing ever really seems to happen. But in the middle of the night on the 7th of August, 1985, The police receive a phone call from Jeremy Bamba. He's told them that he'd received a phone call from his dad to say that his sister Sheila had gone berserk with a gun. Apparently, in the middle of the call, the line went dead. So the police rushed to White House Farm and obviously, because of the reports of gunshots, they waited outside for a little bit. After a few minutes, Jeremy Bamba turned up and the police started asking him some basic questions. Jeremy said that he really didn't have much of a clue what was going on and that he'd left the farm after work the previous evening. The police officers decided to not enter until armed backup arrived. They'd been told that there was a siege situation and they asked Jeremy to sketch a plan of the house for the firearms team. At 7.35am the armed officers entered this 18th century farmhouse and they came across a scene of utter devastation. Five members of the family were dead. June, Neville, Sheila, and even the twin boys, Nicholas and Daniel. They had all been shot dead, and blood was everywhere. Neville had been badly beaten and shot eight times, including four times in the head. June had been shot seven times, including once between her eyes at a point-blank range. Blood was smeared all over the carpets, suggesting that she had tried to drag herself away from her killer. The twin boys had been killed in bed whilst they slept, and Daniel even still had his thumb in his mouth. Now, what's bizarre is that Sheila's dead body was found holding a semi-automatic rifle as well as a Bible. At this point in time, Jeremy was still waiting outside the house, but the police had warned him to expect the worst. Their priority at that point in time was his welfare as they had to inform him what had happened in the house. When they told him, he broke down and cried and was just in a state of absolute traumatic shock. He had lost his entire family at the age of just 24. Police concluded that Sheila, who had suffered from schizophrenia and only recently been released from hospital, and was a farmer's daughter so she knew how to fire a gun, had committed a murder-suicide. Jeremy had been shooting rabbits and had left his rifle fully loaded on the kitchen table. Everything about the setup led to the perfect conclusion that Sheila had had some kind of mental episode and killed her family before killing herself. Her history of mental illness and her diagnosis as a paranoid schizophrenic had led to such a tragic end for her children and her parents. Not long after the bodies were discovered by the police, the detective on the case arrived and was told of the murder-suicide that had occurred. His job was to prepare the report for the coroner, then the decision was made to remove and destroy evidence from the house. They did a big old clean out of the house, removing pretty much everything, including the carpets, which were burned in the grounds of the farm. Jeremy agreed to it in order to remove painful memories. In their eyes, it was an open and shut case and there was nothing more to be done. All the newspapers in the country had an absolute field day with this story. Sheila's ex-husband and the father of the twins, Colin Caffell, said the media gripped onto the story because it had all the elements of a glossy soap opera. The Bamba family were very well respected members of the local community. Neville and June were well known, he was a farmer and a local magistrate, and she was very religious and devoted to her church. However, their children had a very different reputation. Both were adopted when they were young, but Sheila had embarked on a career in modelling, and Jeremy had a very lively social life and enjoyed being out in the town. He was described as a bit of a ladies' man. The main issue in the family is that both children wanted more freedom than their mother would allow. Despite their conclusion, police wanted to find a motive behind the crime. They wanted to know what pushed Sheila into killing her family. So, Jeremy was taken home to piece together the events that led up to the murders. The day before, Jeremy and his dad had been working on the farm, while June took Sheila and the twins into the local village. When they got home in the evening, Jeremy said that Sheila brought up the fact that she was struggling and felt that she could no longer care for her children. She had split from her husband and was visiting her parents, but because of her mental health issues, she believed that her sons were the spawn of the devil. After a heated discussion, Jeremy left at 9.30pm, and then six hours later, he received a fateful phone call from his dad. So, in the media, Sheila was portrayed as this violent drug addict, seriously mentally ill and just a vicious killer. It's the last thing you'd expect from an ex-model from a wealthy family and that's exactly why the public found the case so compelling. All of the information being spread about Sheila in the newspapers was provided by people who lived in the village, who her ex-husband said didn't even know her. They just couldn't wait to get in front of a TV camera or a reporter's microphone for their five minutes of fame. So, on the surface, that was the end of the case, just a tragic incident that no one could possibly do anything to remedy. But, as you've probably guessed by now, the story doesn't end there. Days after the murders, Jeremy's cousins decided to inspect the farmhouse. They wanted to record the inventory left in the house with their solicitor, but they also had their own suspicions, so wanted to do a little bit of digging. What they found was actually a vital piece of evidence that the police had missed in their original search. And this was a silencer, you know, one of those little attachments that you can pop onto the end of a gun to make the shots much quieter. The cousins found the silencer in the gun cupboard and realised that it fit perfectly to the 0.22 calibre rifle that had been used in the murders. When one of the cousins, Anne, got it out of the box, there was either red paint or blood on it, as well as a single grey hair. They thought this was a bit strange, so they snuck it out of the house without Jeremy noticing. They then sent it for forensic examination, but they thought it might just be, you know, rabbit blood and rabbit hair, so they didn't really get their hopes up too much. The gun was Jeremy's and he worked on the farm and shot rabbits so it wouldn't have been too strange for rabbit blood and rabbit hair to be on it. The next day the cousins found even more strange evidence though, a large scratch on the kitchen mantle. Now, this mantle was a really big wooden structure that sort of sat above their oven and it was painted bright red and so the scratch was really quite hard to miss. The cousins thought that it could have been from where the murderer fought with one of the victims while holding the gun, so the gun like came into contact with the mantle during a scuffle and that's what took the paint off in that way. Anyways, a few days later the forensic results came back and they showed that the blood on the silencer was human blood but the blood on the rifle was not. This meant that because traces of human blood were found, the device can't have solely been used just for killing rabbits. The blood inside the silencer was confirmed as Sheila Caffell's. If her blood was on the silencer, it would have had to have been on the rifle at the time when the shootings took place, if she'd have committed the shootings herself. So whoever did it must have removed the silencer, put it back into the box and then into the cupboard. The expert said that the gun would have been too long for Sheila to have been able to shoot herself with, with the silencer on. There were also absolutely no traces of any gun oil found on her nightdress, so doubts started to be cast that she was truly the killer. At the family's funeral, people began to grow suspicious of Jeremy, Sheila's brother and the son of June and Neville. Because of the notoriety of the murders, the funeral was televised and multiple members of the public reported being concerned with Jeremy's behaviour, saying it made them feel uneasy. Police watched the footage and just weren't convinced by his teary performance either. Sheila's ex-husband, Colin, raised his concerns after the cameras stopped rolling at the funeral. Apparently, Jeremy started to make lewd comments about how he couldn't wait to go home with his girlfriend Julie and, quote, have some fun. At least two people who attended the funeral also said that Jeremy's suit was from the designer Hugo Boss, and apparently he walked down the stairs at the farmhouse and exclaimed, Boss, that's what I am from now on. Despite this, not much else happened in regards to the case after that. How strange is that? But a few weeks later, however, the Sun newspaper ran a story that shocked the public even more. Jeremy had contacted them, trying to sell topless pictures of Sheila from when she was a model. Yep, he wanted to sell half-naked pictures of his dead sister. Ugh, no way. Like, surely the police saw this and found it suspicious, yeah? Well, still nothing happened. The police just still didn't investigate Jeremy. It wasn't until one month later, when his now ex-girlfriend, Julie, contacted the police that the case against him really began to be built up. Julie told the police that Jeremy had spoken before about killing his family in order to inherit the farm estate, which was worth around half a million pounds. On the night of the murders, he'd called her and said, it's tonight or never. And at 3am, he called her again, saying that there was something wrong at the farm, and that he hadn't slept all night. Now, Jeremy said that Julie was just bitter, and may have overheard him talking to one of his old lovers on the phone, and was simply wanting revenge, so was just making all this stuff up. The police saw that Jeremy was the only person with the motive to go in and kill the whole family. The house wasn't robbed, nothing had been taken, so the only reason why someone would want the whole family dead would be someone who stood to gain inheritance from their deaths. On the 29th of September, 1985, Jeremy was charged with five counts of murder. In court, he was very charming and polite and didn't show much emotion. But in 1986, a jury found Jeremy guilty of the murder of all five of his family members and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge in the case described him as evil, almost beyond belief. But it doesn't end there. Despite the amount of time that's passed, new evidence has come to light of the tragedy. Police records show that the police were in conversation with someone inside of the house at 5.25am, but armed response waited to enter until 7.37am, more than two hours after that conversation was logged. Also, according to the police logs from the day, after discovering Neville and Sheila's bodies in the kitchen, the armed officers searched the rest of the house. At 10 past 8 in the morning, they reported three more bodies upstairs. But by the time of Jeremy's trial, all of this information had changed. The facts presented to the jury during the trial were that there were four bodies upstairs and just one downstairs, with that one being Neville. But how does that make sense? Dead bodies don't just move. But they insisted Neville Bamber was discovered in the kitchen, June and Sheila were upstairs in the main bedroom, and the twin boys were found in their bedroom. Now some theories suggest that both set of facts could actually be true at the same time. So maybe the police had initially come into the house and found Neville and Sheila's bodies downstairs in the kitchen. Then this theory says that Sheila was lying there bleeding from an attempted suicide when the police came in, but she hadn't quite killed herself and so crawled upstairs and died there. So that's a really interesting theory, but like if she crawled up the stairs after bleeding out, would there not have been a trail of blood like going up the stairs from her body? So you would think that, but because the police burned all the bedding and carpets after the murders, they didn't send them off for any kind of examination or anything. So all of this evidence, which would have been like literal gold dust, was just entirely destroyed to spare Jeremy's feelings before he had to go back into the house after the murders. So there might have been a trail of blood, but we don't know. It's just completely in the abyss now. We'll never know. Oh my god. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable really. You just couldn't imagine that happening today, but I guess this was like 35 years ago, so procedures just weren't as strict back then. But, but back to the confusion with the number of bodies upstairs and downstairs. So there were three sets of staircases in this farmhouse, so as the police were searching for other bodies, Sheila could have used one of the alternate staircases to make her way up to the main bedroom. So this may explain how the number of bodies found in the kitchen changed. I don't know, it's a really weird theory, but also I don't know how else you could explain that all of the armed police officers miscounted the number of dead bodies they saw in the kitchen. Forensic photos taken around 10am show that blood was running from her wounds and that she didn't have liver mortis, suggesting that she'd really not been dead for a very long period of time at all. The prosecution said that she would have been dead at 3.30am and Jeremy had been outside with the police since 3.45 that morning. Just overall it's just so confusing, no one can explain why all these like different theories and different accounts given to the juries just vary so much. Then, looking at more documents, you see that the silencer the cousins had found in the cupboard had also been found at a different time to that which was originally stated. So, bear in mind that this incident happened on the 7th of August. The first date that the silencer was logged in the police system was on the 11th of September, and that law said that it had been found in the gun cupboard. But then another statement said a silencer was found on the 10th of August. So how and why did another silencer appear? Were two silencers even found or were they talking about the same one? Only one was ever discussed at Jeremy's trial, and no one can say with absolute certainty what any of these details mean. But what we do know for sure is that Jeremy's trial can't have been entirely fair if all of this information was omitted. Records revealed that officers even searched the gun cupboards after the murders and hadn't found a silencer. Like I saw the documents where the officers had signed saying, Yes, we've checked this, we've checked this, and that included the gun cupboard. The main element of the prosecution was that there was a silencer in the gun during the murder to try and prove that Jeremy killed his family. Through his appeal campaigns, Jeremy himself has written letters stating that there was never any device like a silencer on that gun. A .22 rifle is a low calibre gun, so it means it's really quiet. During the trial, the jury was told that it was a fact that the silencer was attached to the gun, making it completely impossible that Sheila killed herself. They said her arms would have been too short and the gun and silencer combination too long for her to be able to bring the gun under her chin and pull the trigger. But since then, that's been proven completely false. It would have actually been possible for her to kill herself. And then, in regards to the scratch on the mantelpiece, a crime scene expert said that the police photographer who had initially gone into the house and taken photos hadn't picked up the scratch on the mantelpiece at all. The scratch mark was quite deep and the has said that there would have been a red paint that would have been scratched off and left on the carpet had it been there at the time. Now, on the pictures, there was no sign of any debris at all in that area. This expert was able to demonstrate using life-size pictures that the scratch had been put there after the photos of the crime scene had been taken. The prosecution's story was that a violent struggle had taken place in the kitchen between Jeremy and his father, with the silence of scratching the mantle in the process. The prosecution stated that Sheila could not have fought with Neville because he was six foot four and she was just so much smaller that he would have simply overpowered her. But Neville was sat down when he died, so she could have just easily shot him without having to overpower him at all. Also, the jury was told that the blood in the silencer was a mix of Sheila's and an animal's. Again, just to reiterate here, their version of events is that the silencer had been placed on the end of the gun to complete the killings and then taken off by the murderer and put back in the gun cupboard. So the prosecution's argument was that there was no way Sheila could have got her own blood onto the silencer by like, shooting herself and then tidying it away afterwards. Anyway, they argued that forensic tests showed that Sheila's blood contained the enzyme AK1. But actually, those results just weren't true. The forensic results had actually come back inconclusive, and there was no scientific evidence that the silencer was used at all. The enzyme AK1 can in fact be found in dozens of animals, including rabbits, and this just wasn't mentioned at all in the trial. The day before the killings, Sheila had been arguing with her parents, who had been trying to reason with her, and suggested that she received extra help with her twin boys. Her psychiatrist even said that hinting Sheila wasn't an adequate mother would have flipped her mood completely towards a psychotic episode. He believed that her mental state could have easily driven her to snap if faced with losing her children. Another crucial part of Jeremy's conviction was a statement from his ex girlfriend Julie who said that he had hired a hitman to carry out the killings but the man in question had a completely solid alibi. Julie also later admitted that she'd tried to smother Jeremy with a pillow after they broke up. Additionally, it took her an entire month after the murders for her to go to the police with her story. She said that the whole time she'd been in a state of anguish and distress, but it just appears that she'd been living her completely normal everyday life, just after the shootings right up until she went to the police station. So had Julie been questioned earlier on and denied knowing anything, but then changed her story? Nope because the police initially just saw it as a completely like open and shut case of murder-suicide, they felt they had no need to question Judy to begin with because they just thought it was all Sheila's doing, so no worry there. So Jeremy's account of the night has never changed. He said that his dad had also phoned the police on the night of the murders, but that was never revealed at trial. Recently, a document has been released which shows a phone call from Neville Bamber to the police at 3.26am and the notes taken by the call handler literally quotes daughter gone berserk and got hold of one of my guns. The other police log, 10 minutes later, recorded the source of Jeremy's call as being directly from his home in Goldhanger, which was three miles away. Now, what really, really irritates me about this case is that thousands of documents relating to it have been placed under what they call public interest immunity, which means they're never to be released by the police. Many other important documents have just been completely destroyed as well. I mean, I would understand if Jeremy had died or whatever, but this man is still in prison to this day. How can it be legal to destroy evidence from a case? Who could that ever possibly benefit? It makes me so angry. Anyways, shortly after the trial, the Bambas' extended family inherited their estate, and the cousins that reportedly found the silencer moved into White House Farm. Now, I don't know about you, Martha, but, like, if you were in prison for killing your whole family, the last place on earth I would want to move to as your cousin would be the house where my relatives were murdered. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't move into your place if it was the other way around either. Exactly. It's just all very, very odd, in my opinion. The family stands by the conviction, although Jeremy has appealed it since 1986 to absolutely no avail, and he will die behind bars but the detective from the case has stated, I am absolutely convinced, unequivocally, that we have the right man behind bars. So yeah, that was the case of the White House farm murders. What do you guys think? If I'm honest, I was so shocked when I was researching this case. I'd heard of the story before, but like only up until the point of Jeremy's sentencing. All this time, I just thought that that was where the story ended, but these recent developments on the end have truly shocked me to my core like Jeremy has now been in prison for what 34 years don't get me wrong i'm not saying he's like definitely innocent but also if he is wow like imagine having your entire family die and then having to serve 34 years for a crime that you didn't even commit anyways thank you so much for joining us and we hope you enjoyed today's case and remember to let us know your thoughts We're always active on our Instagram, TikTok, and we're also starting to build up our Facebook group. And we'd love to hear your comments on this case. But remember to be loud, be fierce, and don't talk to killers. Bye, guys! Bye, guys!